Hey, I'm Rob, and this is episode 5 of the Folly Coffee Podcast. Let's get it brewing! So today I am sipping on a coffee from the Cauca region of Colombia, uh, from the Asmu Cafe Farmer Cooperative, grown at an altitude of 1,850 to 1,900 meters above sea level. It's a fully washed coffee with Castillo Catura and Colombia variety beans. Now, if you're a huge coffee nerd, these things actually mean something to you. The processing method, it's washed, so it's going to have really nice, clean, vibrant flavors. It's a high-altitude coffee, so it's going to be of a nice quality. It's going to have some really great complexity to it. The sugars are going to be uh, grown at a higher concentration within the cherry, lending to the growing process, and uh, the different varieties, those may even mean something to you. But for the broad majority of coffee drinkers, all these things I just said are not they don't mean anything in terms of flavor profile. What what can I actually expect to taste of this coffee if I don't know what uh, processing method is, if I don't know what makes a high-altitude coffee or why that's good for a coffee, if I don't know a specific farm or variety of coffee, these facts mean nothing when it comes to the flavor of a coffee or what to expect. Uh, and so I wanted to start today's episode with that point because today's episode is what can we, as specialty coffee roasters, do better? So my background, I come from actually a craft beer background. Right out of college, I did sales for Boston Beer Company, most famous for Sam Adams, but also selling Angry Orchard, Twisted Tea, and now this whole hard seltzer phenomenon. I was in St. Louis when we launched Truly. Uh, and coming from a beer background, I think I had an outside looking in view of the coffee world. And so it was uh, almost four years ago now that I really, really got into specialty coffee, and it was really intimidating at first. Uh, exactly what I started the episode with. Most roasters communicate their coffees in terms of the processing method, the farm and origin it comes from, maybe the variety of coffee, and then tasting notes. And a lot of these times, these tasting notes are what, like, an experienced coffee drinker is tasting in the coffee. Things like uh, floral jasmine and uh, lemon rind and uh, grapefruit-like acidity. And uh, I've seen Fruit Loops is one that a lot of people like to use for like naturally processed coffees. And now these are fun tasting notes, and it's definitely intriguing to someone. But there are so many things that go into that in terms of brewing to get those flavors to come out. Now, I'm getting way ahead of myself here. I'm just going to start from square one as opposed to go completely like train, get derailed on a train of thought. So coming from a craft beer background, a lot of what I think about is what happened in the craft beer boom. So uh, I'm going to just give off the top of my head kind of the 
brief, brief history of craft beer in the U.S. and what led to the absolute explosion of craft beer in the early 2000s and continued into the 2010s. Now we're seeing it kind of come to a little bit of a bubble. But so in terms of craft beer, you have your original players on each coast. You have Sam Adams on the East Coast launching in 1984. You have Sierra Nevada on the West Coast uh, launching in early 1990s. These are really kind of your first two major players to uh, launch craft beer on each coast. And so these are your first entries into market. And when we're talking about timeline, we're talking late to uh, 1980s, early 1992. At this time, the most prolific beers are going to be your light beers, your Miller, your Bud, and your Coors. For someone like Sam Adams or Sierra Nevada to come along, and then soon after that, you have New Belgium out of Colorado. Uh, even Summit here in Minnesota was early in the game in the 90s. Uh, at that point in time, if you went to someone and said, "Would you be willing to pay eight to ten dollars for a six pack of craft or a six pack of beer?" People would think you're crazy. And so these were your early innovators. So they're the ones that really uh, drove the movement of craft beer, and they had to do a lot of the hard work on getting people to even think of beer in a different way as it used to be before the domination of light beer began in like the 70s, uh, to the point where there was generic, unbranded just beer at grocery stores, which is absolutely hilarious. Seriously, Google, just generic beer. There were cans that just said beer because it became a commodity at that point. And that's there. you can already see how there's already some uh, comparisons you can do between beer and coffee. But uh, so early 90s, you've got your first entrance into the craft beer market, your Sam Adams, your Sierra Nevada, your New Belgium, your Summit up here. You've got kind of like Shinerbach is one of the OGs down in Texas. Then you start to see uh, newer entrants into market that are now like national players on the West Coast. Stone is a great example. Lagunitas bringing the IPA uh, into the category. And that is really drove a lot of the craft beer growth in the 2000s. Dale's Pale, so Oscar Blues out of Colorado. Uh, here in Minnesota, Surly on the East Coast. Uh, Brooklyn Brewery is another one that came soon after Sam Adams. And so you have this kind of second wave of brewers entering. So at this point, Sam Adams here in Nevada are starting to have a uh, multi-regional presence. And you've got the kind of uh, what are now large breweries just starting and becoming local and regional players. And then you have this whole nother wave of explosion of breweries and tap rooms in the 2000s when craft beer really started to take in and the style of beers that really drove that would be your american style beers using pacific northwest hops that have that really um really distinct like uh almost like grapefruit citrusy piney but like really bright hops that made ipas like really unique and delicious and then the whole movement of people wanting to support local and really thinking about where what they're buying from comes into play so by the time we hit 2010 this thing is at full explosion craft beer has officially become mainstream it's hard to go three blocks without running into a new brewery in every state across the U.S. Every major metro has an explosion of craft breweries from tap rooms to distribution. And I really compare it closely. <laughs> so much vocal fry right there. But I compare it really closely to what is happening in coffee. 
what happened in craft beer that I think at least in part led to the growth of it were three factors. First is the obvious. They're delicious. And so consumer demand drove it. Word of mouth, somebody trying these new beers, beers that they've never tasted before, flavors they've never tasted before. Second, the designation of what makes a craft beer. A craft beer, the last time I was informed on it, is an independently owned company. Beer is the majority of what they produce, and it's under 6 million barrels of beer. And a barrel is two, obviously, two half barrels, but a half barrel is kind of your standard large keg. Uh, And so someone doing less than 6 million barrels. It used to be 2 million barrels a year, uh, but Sam Adams actually exceeded that limit, and they changed the rule for Sam Adams because of what they did to lay out the groundwork for craft beer. And then traditional ingredients. So not using any sort of adjuncts to save cost or lightened flavor. This There's some debate on this as of late, as light lagers have become, weirdly enough, a popular craft beer style. But so just to go over those again, you're talking independently owned, you're talking traditional ingredients, you're talking under 6 million barrels, and that beer is the majority of what you produce. So there is a clear definition of what makes a craft beer. So if you go to someone and say, I want a craft beer, they can't take a light uh, a light beer from a large company and say, yeah, this tastes great. This is a craft beer. It's very clearly defined what is and isn't a craft beer. And so when you're searching for those, it, it's very easy to find. And then the last part is, so the consumer demand, the clear definition of what is a craft beer. And the last part is that the craft beer industry did an absolutely amazing job at getting people to drink craft beer. Instead of saying, drink our beer, all craft breweries, and this is not always true, obviously there's competition within the craft beer industry, especially now, but especially in the 2000s where everybody was growing, where the entire category was growing, where everybody's looking for the latest and greatest craft beers, The industry as a whole was very friendly with each other, and the message that consumers got is drink craft beer. So instead of saying, only drink my beer, you should only drink this one, you should only have this, the message was drink craft beer. And so that led people to want to try as many as possible. The overall friendly nature of all these breweries together, making suggestions of which beers to try from other breweries, it led to this really, really tight-knit community of not only within craft beer, but also the consumers embraced it because of just the culture it created. And I think that led in part to uh, some of the explosive growth that you saw. Now, I thought this was a coffee episode. I thought you are in the coffee world now. Why are we talking so much about craft beer. Well, I think if we as specialty coffee roasters can do some of the things that happen within craft beer, I think 10, 15 years from now, we'll be talking about specialty coffee like we were talking about craft beer, uh, especially in the early 2010s. And when you think of relatively how few beer drinkers there are in relation to the just ubiquitous nature of coffee drinking, there's even potentially a higher ceiling for specialty coffee and everything uh, that it involves. And so to kind of tie this back to coffee and where I think we're at now, in looking at the trends of growth of craft beer in the late 1990s, 
uh, 2000s and early 2010 and comparing it to the last 10 years. So really looking at like 2010 to 2019, the growth trends are, are really, really similar. So when you look at the early 2000s to the 2010s of uh, craft beer versus coffee, you could almost take those two different time periods and overlay them together on a chart in terms of the amount of money that is being spent by consumers on these categories. And the cool thing about coffee is that over the past 20 years, really, the number of coffee drinkers has remained remarkably similar. And it is one of those beverages that remains remarkably similar over time. Now, I'm not saying what type of coffee people are drinking. I'm not saying how they're brewing it. I'm not saying whether whether it's served hot or cold, but just do you or do you not drink coffee? The number of coffee drinkers has remained remarkably similar over the past 10 years. But the amount being spent on coffee has steadily inclined over the past eight years. So while the number of drinkers remains similar, the amount of money being spent on the category continues to rise. And what's driving that growth is specialty coffee, cold brew being a big player into this, which is why I'm such a fan of cold brew because it gets people to think of coffee in a different way. That's like, oh, if you find a really good one, you don't need the cream sugar. That's a whole nother story. But what that tells me is that the same, it's not that we're getting an influx of people uh, starting to drink coffee. So with craft beer, there's a huge explosion of number of people to uh, enter craft beer. But again, beer drinkers, it changes a little bit, and especially right now with the introduction of hard seltzers. But uh, during that time period, the number of beer drinkers didn't rapidly increase to account for this growth in craft beer. It was that people were drinking different beer. And so I think this is exactly what's happening in coffee. You see the number of drinkers remaining the same. You see the amount per person uh, that each person is spending increasing. And so that's where I go, oh, man, we're on a really similar trajectory as craft beer within specialty coffee, but I think we have some things we're doing wrong as an industry that could potentially slow the growth or even put a halt to the growth and really cap it at what this whole category can be. Uh, The first one is that I think as a whole, the specialty coffee community does not do a fantastic job at communicating effectively to coffee drinkers in terms of packaging, branding, and really any marketing communications that go out. The, when I got into coffee, it was very, very intimidating. Uh, still one of my favorite coffees to date is a naturally processed Ethiopian Yirgacheff. But the way I tried my first ever naturally processed Ethiopian Yirgacheff is I was just lucky that I was at a great roaster and there was an awesome barista that was willing to make a suggestion because I walked in and said, you know, my friend told me to come here to try coffee and I guess, like, how's this first one, this Yirgacheff? Yeah, yeah, how is that one? They're like, oh, it's really great. It's like, no, it's a blueberry. And I'm like, okay, okay, I guess. And he tried it and actually tasted like that. And it blew my mind. And that's 
that's where I was willing to go into every cafe and do that same thing. I had no idea what I'm looking at when it turns of in terms of the origin, in terms of like the the altitude is being grown, the processing method. I didn't even know what these words meant, and I did a lot of research on my own to figure this out. But I also know that the way that I fell in love with coffee is not the the same journey most people are going to take. Most people are going to try that cup of coffee at that cafe and say. That was a good cup of coffee. I'm glad I came to this cafe, but not leave knowing that it was the natural process that they liked, that it was an Ethiopian coffee that they liked, that the Yirgacheff region is a region that they enjoy. And so by communicating the origin as the first thing in the coffee, it's tough for consumers to learn up front what it's about or even to attract them because it is so intimidating. And so... Right now, what's happening within specialty coffee is that all these high-end roasters are competing with each other for the same group of coffee drinkers that know what they're talking about when it comes to all of these things. Because if I'm a customer that just is looking for a great cup of coffee, I don't necessarily know what goes into that, and I walk into a cafe and just say, I'll take the first thing on there, whether I enjoy it or not, I don't know why I enjoyed it. And so... I'm probably not going to come back just because it's an intimidating experience. Now, this isn't true for everybody. Obviously, that's not what happened to me. It's not what happened to everybody that got into coffee. But somebody has to be curious enough and passionate enough about finding more great coffee that they're willing to overcome the anxiety that comes with trying to read through a complex coffee menu. And so what I think roasters can do better in communication is having much more accessibility in terms of the language that's used or having further explanation to what somebody can expect. And this leads me to one of the more hotly debated topics within coffee is tasting notes. As I alluded to earlier, these tasting notes, generally this is how it's done. You have a coffee that you've chosen, that you're going to roast, you're going to bring to production, to bag, to sell to your customers, or to serve at your cafe to your customers, and you get your own team of people to sit around a table cupping the coffee, which is the industry term for basically sampling. Cupping, you take a set amount of coffee, a set amount of water, allow it to steep, and then you remove the grounds, you take a spoon, and you slurp on this coffee. And so you've got a group of people that are in the coffee industry uh, coffee export experts or have at least tasted a ton of different coffees and have a lot of experience, they're the ones making the tasting notes. And so if I've got Jeff with me at Folly Coffee, this guy's a top 15 coffee taster in the country. And so when I'm cupping with him, the things that he's tasting, I consider myself to have a nice refined palate and he'll get these tasting notes that I just go, oh my gosh, like I totally get what you're saying, but I never would have come up with that on my own unless you were here right here with me. And so things like savory tomato is one thing he said that I was like, you're actually completely right about this coffee, but if I'm at home drinking a coffee, that's never going to come to my mind unless I have that palate or that experience or that Rolodex of coffee lingo and terms. And so you get these people uh, tasting the coffees and writing down tasting notes, and that's what they put on their menu. That's what they put on the packaging. And so you can see how this creates a disconnect between coffee experts in the industry and someone at home. Because if someone at home just likes good coffee and they see these tasting notes and they go, oh, Fruit Loops, like, uh, oh, rose, uh, rose like aroma and uh, grapefruit like acidity, they expect it to be like this 
taste exactly like that, but these are more like the underlying tones of these coffees, especially because most people aren't able to brew it to exact specification at home. And so they get this coffee to brew at home. They brew it at home and they go, I don't, it doesn't taste like exactly what it says on the package, or I don't even know what I should be tasting based on those tasting notes. And so I think there's two ways to approach this. Uh, the way we approach it at Folly is we keep our flavor profiles set and we find coffees that match those flavor profiles. So for example, our house beam is always sweet and fruit forward. So we look for coffees that are sweet and fruit forward and that's what it says on our package is a balance of bright sweetness. So you can get an idea of what this coffee is going to be like before you buy it and then it's up to our drinkers to decide if, well, first of all, most drinkers aren't going to go home and write down tasting notes, but it's up to the coffee drinker to figure out what they taste in it. So by keeping it general up front, they know kind of what kind of coffee they're going to get. This is going to be sweet and bright. Then they go home and they can figure out the exact tasting notes. We rotate all of our origins throughout the year so those tasting notes change, but the house bean's always going to be sweet, fruit forward, nice and bright. As opposed to our winer, we call it that because we look for beans with a nice bright acidity like a good wine, you know that you're going to get a really bright high acid coffee. And so someone knows that if they like high acid coffees, they'll like that one and they can do the tasting notes on their own. The other strategy, and we don't do this, and I don't know of anyone that does, but this would be really, really cool if roasters included more people off the street on their cuppings to come up with their tasting notes. And give me a shout out if you do this because I want to give you a shout out because this is an awesome practice. So have a tasting where your roasters, your baristas, your team is tasting those coffees and coming up with the high detailed tasting notes. But also have someone who's not a super experienced coffee drinker come in and taste that coffee and see what they think about it. Because I've had people taste our coffees that have never had a specialty coffee and the comments that they say are much different than what I expect. The most common one by far is that, whoa, this isn't bitter. And then you realize, holy smokes, there's a whole group of coffee drinkers that's much, much larger than the existing specialty niche coffee community that have never had a coffee that doesn't have that traditional like big chain kind of burnt harsh finish. So when they try a lighter roasted coffee with a nice smooth finish, they go, whoa, this just isn't bitter. And that's the thing they like about it most. And so here I am over here going like, this one's got this like floral nose, it's bursting with blueberry, a slight lemon citrus to it. And the number one thing they take away is that it's not bitter. And it's almost humbling in a way. It makes you take a step back and say, oh, this is what customers are interested in and that is how the whole category can grow is yes I still want to roast coffees that the nerdiest of coffee nerds that's deep into it is going to taste and ha and just absolutely love and be able to write down tasting notes that last for days but what's going to grow the category and grow specialty coffee and the rising tide raises all ships is if we can attract people that have never had a coffee into our cafes, it, which we don't have one, but our proverbial cafes, or to buy our coffee for the first time, or to go, you know what, maybe I will spend four or five dollars more on this bag of coffee uh, because because of the tasting notes sound intriguing. Simple, clean tasting notes. This is something that when I got into it was a big thing. And that leads me into my next point of something that is way different from the craft beer industry 
that I don't know that Specialty Coffee as a whole does a great job at kind of uh, managing. And so the biggest challenge of Specialty Coffee versus craft beer is that if you're a brewer and you brew a beer and you bottle it or can it and put it in a six-pack, it's done. As it goes out the door of your brewery, it's done. Now, that's an overstatement. There are beers that age well over time, blah, blah, blah. But the beer is as it is intended to be drank. Customer goes home, opens it. That's exactly how it's supposed to be. So whether it's good or bad, it's done. Whereas coffee, you sell it to someone as a whole bean. And there's another step that has to happen, which is a very, very important step, is brewing it at home. This is where it gets dicey. Because as I've discussed in my previous episodes, there are a multitude of ways to brew coffee, some vastly superior to others. Unfortunately, the most common ways of brewing coffee are not on the the great end of the brewing spectrum. Most common one at this point probably being Keurig, which is just, as I've said, no, just no on so many levels. No, but kind of you're like Mr. Coffee, your automatic coffee makers, your standard coffee makers, you get at any chain store or any big box store. Uh, These are your most common coffee brewers. And within specialty coffee, the general consensus is like, don't buy our coffee and put it in that. (laughs) That will not do our coffee justice. It will not be the absolute best representation of our coffee, which is true. If you make a really great coffee in a Mr. Coffee and compare it to a cup that you brew as a single cup pour over or a really well done French press or an aero press or these awesome brewing methods, there's going to be a clear winner in taste profile. But the way I look at it is that if you communicate or even scoff at someone who has one of those and make them feel like they're stupid for having that, they're not going to want to buy your coffee and they'll never try it in the first place. My approach, whether it's right or wrong, is if you brew our coffee, if you brew Folly coffee or any high-end specialty coffee on your Mr. Coffee Maker, it's going to taste better than what you're doing now. Your dark roasted, your bitter, your low-end kind of cheapo bargain coffee, it's going to taste better than that. Is it going to be the absolute best representation of that bean? Definitely not. But hopefully what happens is someone drinks that and goes, oh, this is better than what I've been drinking. Most people, if it is better and they like it enough, they'll say, I like this coffee now. I'll drink this in my Mr. Coffee. What would be the ultimate that it's like, this is my dream, is that someone drinks it in that Mr. Coffee and goes, whoa, this is a step up from what I've been drinking. I wonder what it tastes like on that next level. And breaking down the barrier in between someone drinking at a cafe and drinking it at home. And this is another thing that is difficult is most people don't think of cafes that are roasters too. They don't think of them as coffee roasters. They think of them, that's a place that serves a great cup of coffee. Now, it's obviously not true always because people are buying beans from there and brewing at home. I'm talking like the general consensus of coffee drinkers is... Most people get a cup of coffee at a cafe and say, I I could never make it taste like this at home. There's just no possible way. 
And so my goal is how can we sneak closer and closer to getting people to go, you know what, I could do both. I can enjoy awesome espresso and these drinks at a cafe that I can't make at home, but I can make that cup of coffee to that level on my own with just a few pieces of equipment or at least get close with a couple easy things. Previous episode about coffee brewing, check that one out if you're interested in what those pieces of equipment might be. I don't want to get into that for the sake of time of this episode. But it's breaking down that barrier of someone just viewing a cafe as like, that's where I get that cup of coffee. I can never do it like this. I'm I'm going to drink my nice coffee at this cafe and then drink my cheapo coffee at home because I can't even get close to making it like that. It's trying to drive people to try better coffee. Now, moving on to a difficult thing that I've racked my brain on and cannot figure out how to do well is how to categorize specialty coffee. Specialty coffee, by definition, are coffees that are rated as 80 plus. And this is done at origin. And so the green unroasted coffee is rated as an 80 plus. 80 plus. If you're roasting coffees that are 80 plus, you are technically a specialty coffee roaster. Uh, I've heard other definitions in terms of people trying to make it more concrete, but ultimately, if you're roasting 80-plus coffees, you're a specialty coffee roaster. The trouble here is the difference between the quality of coffees from like 80 to 85 versus coffees that are 90-plus, it's leaps and bounds. And so places like Starbucks actually are specialty coffee roasters because the coffees they roast are at that kind of like that 80 range. And so when this third wave of coffee roasters comes in roasting really high-end, complex, intricate, delicious coffees that are roasted very intentionally and thoughtfully, they're placed in the exact same category as a Starbucks. And so this eliminates the ability to be able to say, as an industry, drink specialty coffee because This wouldn't drive people to drink this high end of the category or the high end of coffees, which is where they become really, really delicious. Someone tastes a Starbucks and goes, oh, it's specialty coffee. This this is as good as coffee gets because that roaster, that folly guy said, drink specialty coffee. And I'm drinking specialty coffee and this is what it tastes like. So I'm not going to spend any more than I am now because I've had Starbucks and that's specialty coffee. This also could lead as to why there's increased competition within kind of the third wave movement is because there's no concrete way to get people to drink. Like, I don't even know what to call it. The, what I've seen is some roasters that are like your more developed. I've seen Verve use this term is craft coffee. And it's not bad because like I get it. Like it, you're you're relating to the craft beer movement. Craft is a word that people now associate with quality, and so craft coffee uh, is a way to try to separate yourself from the really big, you know, big chain stores. But on the other end, it doesn't have a concise definition of what that means. And so while it's a great buzzword, it doesn't inform the customer what to look for. And so I don't know what it is. I don't know what the term is. I don't know what the definition is. But one thing this industry needs is a concise definition and a term that separate small, not even small, but just independently owned 
coffee roasters focusing purely on quality, ethical sourcing, and really transparency is a huge thing. There's a set list of things that all these great roasters are doing, but there's no term to be able to communicate effectively as an entire industry what consumers should look for. And so this confusion has allowed someone like a Starbucks to be able to remain at the front of the pack because in the broad majority of coffee drinkers' eyes and mouths is that Starbucks is, that's great coffee. And in the 80s, this is true. That was as good a coffee as you could get in the American market. But it just simply has changed with, you know, Starbucks was the second wave of coffee. The first wave of coffee was just like your Folgers, your gas station. Starbucks is the second wave. So third wave is this new wave of roasters coming in with really nice, light roasted, balanced, complex, intricate, flavorful coffees coming from ethical sources and really working to improve coffee as a whole from both an economic sustainability, environmental sustainability, and also uh, just a quality that you're getting in the cup. So this, if anyone can crack that code, I think it would be groundbreaking for this industry and allow specialty coffee, quote unquote, or third wave, or craft coffee, or whatever you want to call the high end of coffee, it would allow themselves to differentiate from your standard cup of coffees that don't meet these criteria and aren't going to blow anyone's minds in terms of the taste profile. It would allow themselves to differentiate themselves from this and allow the coffee community to be able to communicate communicate to customers what to look for when they're buying coffee because it's a big enough there are enough coffee drinkers that every single high-quality coffee roaster in this country can grow at an astounding rate. And yet we all continue to compete with each other for the existing group of high-end coffee drinkers. And you can kind of picture who I'm talking about. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that because these passionate people about coffee are what – that's what I love most. And that's what really I personally am like is I love sitting down and thinking about a cup of coffee and writing down tasting notes and evaluating it from that profile. But most people will never do this. And so if we continue only to focus on this, that's really going to hold us back. Uh, And it's also tough to do because I want to drive this point is that as you get and as I get deep into specialty coffee, as as it becomes more and more enveloping and you're farther and farther away from that first cup of great coffee you've ever had, it gets harder to picture in your mind's eye what somebody who's never had a cup is looking for. And so you start to make assumptions that it's like, you don't want this. Trust me, you don't want that. And yet there are people out there that their favorite cup is a super bitter cup. And yeah, we, we may never uh, convert that person over to the high end of coffee because they're, they're set in their ways of what they want. But instead of thinking of it in terms of what coffee nerds and like snobs like myself and others that I know, what we look for in an amazing cup of coffee, what is it that the average coffee drinker may be looking for? And maybe you're Maybe the business plan isn't or like the business idea isn't to go to the average uh, coffee drinker, but I do think there is a way to roast really amazing coffees that are still super, super approachable. And this, this explains why out of our lineup, our classic Joe is far and away our number one seller. 
And the whole idea behind the Classic Joe is we were looking to match just like a classic coffee profile, but bringing it to the next level. So we're looking in terms of classic coffee tasting notes. Like when people think of coffee, what do they think of? Well, they think of bitterness, but we don't want that. So let's throw that out because I don't think people want that. I think they just accept it in their coffees. And they were like, but like that nutty chocolatey balance is what most people think of when they think of coffee. And so we wanted to find really high quality coffees with a really nice, balanced, smooth, sweet, chocolatey, nutty profile. And this has far and away become our number one, uh, our number one seller. But if I bring that coffee to like a group of people where we're cupping coffees, it's never going to get picked as the favorite because it's so approachable that it becomes quote unquote boring to someone who's tried hundreds and thousands of coffees. And when this happens and you kind of almost turn your head up at these really great, drinkable, enjoyable cups of coffee, you lose the connection with someone that you may attract. And so you're bringing forward these insane coffees with a really brilliant, like, so let's go back to craft beer. How would you get someone that is a dedicated light beer drinker to get into craft beer? You're like, oh, I know they would like it if they tried the right ones. Would you go to someone who's drinking a light beer and be like, you got to try this face ripping double IPA. It's like, it's insane. Like your face is going to melt. It's got these intense grapefruit piney flavors and it's 11% alcohol. It's insane. Someone who only drinks light beer in their palate of where they're at is going to try that and think this craft beer stuff is disgusting. I'm out. Same thing with coffee. If someone is drinking whatever, your Starbucks or even just your Keurig every day and you go to them and be like, you should try this high altitude, fully washed Kenyan brewed on my V60. So it's it's got a very tea-like body, but a really bright, high acid, grapefruit-like acidity that just shines through. And it's, it's crazy. It's an awesome flavor profile. Someone who has grown accustomed and grown to enjoy the, the Keurig or the Starbucks or just whatever coffee is going to take a sip of that. And it's going to be so different that the brain does this thing when it tastes something that's not expecting, it's just going to reject it. So someone that's not an experienced coffee drinker doesn't go into a cup of coffee and think, I'm going to think about this objectively and the flavors that come forward. They're going to a cup of coffee and saying, I know what coffee tastes like. How does this compare to my current idea of what that is? And if it tastes radically different, the brain immediately is just, no, this is not what I thought I was drinking. It's on the extreme example of that would be if you think you're about to drink a cup of milk and it's a cup of OJ. I've done it once in my life and it was, I, I don't know why it sticks in my mind so much, but it's such a startling experience when you're expecting a cup of milk and then you get intense orange acidity and sugar sweetness blasting your brain. And so even though I like orange juice, that experience was terrible. And so having styles and using communication and having branding and marketing, keeping this in mind would be an extremely effective way to get people to even think about trying specialty coffee. And again, finding a term and a set of rules that defines what a specialty coffee is. And unfortunately, by creating rules, 
this could end up excluding some people that consider themselves specialty coffee roasters. And I'm sure the set of rules would be a very, very hotly debated topic because anything where excluding someone can happen is going to be controversial because generally we don't want to do that. But if we create a set of rules that are aimed at increasing overall quality, at increasing economic and environmental sustainability, there's no reason that someone, if they didn't fit the rules, wouldn't want to adjust to do it. And then as an industry, we can communicate to customers what to look for in the coffee. So that's that's a lot on the, um, the kind of the communication, the branding, what craft beer did from like a marketing and cultural perspective to be able to get people into it. Very long-winded, I know, but it's something that I think about a lot because obviously I'm trying to find new coffee drinkers to try our coffee, uh, and, and I often put myself in their shoes. And being, you know, I'm almost four years removed now from really starting to get super into it, but that's not too long ago that I've forgotten what it's like as opposed to you meet some people that have been in the industry 10, 20 years. I can't imagine how difficult it would be to remember what really was that first cup like? And how did I decide to have that first cup? And uh, did I love it right away? Or did I have to convince myself I liked it and learn to love it later? Or was there a certain style that I liked 10 years ago that I now don't? There, there are some styles that were my favorite four years ago that now I don't even really think about, uh, much to what I was talking to earlier. So th- that's that's like the the branding, the marketing, the communication, the the really close connection between craft beer and specialty coffee, and what could be done to take this uh, take this cultural movement of third wave coffee, fourth wave coffee, and really bring it to uh, as many people as possible. Because this outside of business, it's like yeah, this it's a cool. I re- I really do enjoy like business trends and food and beverage and seeing how things work, but. One of the things that really drives me to coffee and why I started Folly Coffee is it's a unique business that if you roast high-end, ethically sourced, high-quality coffees that you're paying well above fair trade prices for, the more success you have as a business, the more the growers and farmers and pickers at traditionally impoverished origins, the more they benefit. And so it's one of those rare industries where the more success you can have, the more success everyone in the supply chain has, as opposed to other industries where they're going to try to drive price down at origin, or not origin, but like they're going to try to drive the producer's price down to try to gouge them for as much as possible. Coffee has a goal of growing prices to be able to create more economic sustainability. And so when I'm talking about growing this category as a whole, it's not just the business side of it. I'm talking the insane economic sustainability uh, that and, and really stability that could be created in this in this wild and crazy coffee market. Like the commodity price of coffee fluctuates so much that right now it's below a dollar. And if coffee is all you grow, the commodity price being below a dollar influences all prices of coffee. And it's bad for everybody because if the commodity price keeps going down, growers are going to be able to not afford to continue to grow. And then the quality of coffee will also be driven down. It's much more complicated than that. But it it, it, it is something to consider about the specialty coffee industry that there isn't just the financial and like 
categorical side of the business, but also the the transparency of this industry is what drove me to it and want to start a business in it that as we grow, it feels good that we can help we can help just by purchasing more coffee. It's as simple as that, really. And so moving on from kind of like the the branding, the marketing, the business and kind of my thoughts on that. And for the last 15 minutes, just talking about trends I'm seeing uh, within coffee and what could lead someone to try their first quote unquote great cup and not get it and be opposed to it. Uh, the, the I already touched on roasters not accepting how most people brew coffee. Now we can encourage people to get a French press, to get a V60 in a nice kettle, to like experiment around with the AeroPress, but ultimately the broad majority of coffee drinkers are convenience driven to a certain extent. Uh, and we can't, as an industry, say this is the only way to brew our coffee. It's it's totally acceptable to say this is the best way to brew our coffee, or you will get a better cup of coffee out of here. But when people think of specialty coffee and think they can only do it on a French press or it has to be brewed this way, they're going to be like, oh, I don't have that, so I'm not going to do it. It's, it's Most people, that's as far as the decision-making tree is going to go. I don't have that. So I'm not going to do it. Even a grinder. Most people don't have grinders. And if they do have a grinder, it's the $10 Whirlybird grinder that makes pour over impossible because a Whirlybird grinder creates fines that are small enough. So the grounds are ground small enough that it's going to plug up a pour over and you won't even be able to do pour over because the water is just going to be sitting on top of the grounds. And so by communicating that this is the only way to brew our coffee, it stops a lot of people from wanting to enter. Uh, and so accepting that most people are going to be stuck in their ways of brewing coffee and hopefully they try it on their existing way and maybe it opens them up to wanting to uh, learn new brewing methods. But at the very least, maybe they do that and say, oh, you know what, I want to try more cafes and I want to go to more places uh, and check out more of these local businesses. The other side I'm saying is the steps that a roaster I'm not going to say traditionally begins in, but I will say a common path of how a roaster is started. A very common path is someone opens a cafe and sometimes they just start roasting right when they open and they see it as a cost saving mechanism. They go, well, you know, if I buy roasted coffee, it's this much. If I buy unroasted coffee, it's less. And then I can just roast it my own and I'll learn on the fly but I'm still going to charge the same price as the experienced roaster with proven track record down the street. And so in this, someone goes, I just got a $5 cup of coffee. This is going to be amazing. And they try it and it's from an inexperienced roaster. And it probably won't justify the $5 spent. And then someone looks at that roaster down the street that's been proven track record and is experienced or has a roaster that's been doing it for long enough that uh, the profiles justify kind of the end price. And they say, well, I'm not going to go there either because I, I, I don't get this whole $5 cup of coffee thing. And so beginning a roasting program too early on the cafe side of things, the best advice I ever received, I swear I can't even remember who gave it to me because I was meeting with so many people and trying to learn about coffee that I was just a whirlwind. I'm talking like three or four people a day just picking anyone's brain. And the advice I got was that if you're going to start a roaster, either uh, 
start a cafe or start a roaster. And then if you still want to do the other one later, start that later. And the reason this is great advice is because these really are two separate businesses. A cafe is its own monster of a business to learn how to deal from staff management, from uh, how experience of a staff, so staff training becomes a thing, uh, staff turnover, preparation, inventory management, uh, marketing, driving people to your cafe, and the roasting obviously is a business in its own as well. And so doing both at once can lead to that, that once you get a coffee good enough that people don't complain about it, it's tough to bring the roasting program to the next level if you're still focusing on how to make the cafe a sustainable business. And so once it gets to that level that the coffee's good enough, uh, that's typically where it stalls out because if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And it's tough to dedicate a lot of time to perfecting roasting if you're focused on the, the cafe side. And this is, again, like everything I say is not universally true. There are, there are people who've done both amazingly at the same time, but it does make it more difficult. And I, I, anybody that's done it, open a cafe and roaster at the exact same time can vouch for the difficulty that this creates. Uh, and so dedicating to one or the other can help to develop a roasting program before a cafe is open and really perfecting your style and your approach and your flavor profiles before opening a cafe or opening a cafe, making that into a sustainable business that can be run in a sense on its own or at least a, a more predictable way and then being able to dedicate time and resources to developing a great roasting program. Um, and so essentially not using roasting as a cost-saving measure and making sure that if you're starting a roasting program, that the intentions are uh, are based on quality and flavor to justify the prices. So not letting cost and not letting the price, if you are roasting, not letting the price of your unroasted coffee purely dictate the cost of the coffee. And what I mean by that is, well, we paid this much for the green coffee, and so we have to charge this much for a cup. That's true. You have to keep your margins. You need to do that. But if you get a coffee that's expensive and you roast it poorly, it's not fair to the customer to still charge that that $5, $6 price point that really high-end coffees can command. Uh, it's, it's worth it for your business long-term to either, A, price that down. So... If someone, if the, even if the coffee uh, is expensive, if it's not roasted, and if you blind tasted it and say, I wouldn't pay $5 for this, do you think your customer is going to feel good when they buy it? So if it turns out that way, either one is just ditching that coffee to serve in your cafe. You can donate it to a local food shelf and just say, hey, we have some fresh roasted coffee. Uh, you can sell it at a cheaper price. If it's if it's good enough to drink, but not good enough for that price point, you can sell it at a lower price just to be able to move it. Uh, but in thinking about the business long term, you want someone to spend that money and be happy they did and to come back and tell more people about it. And so this phenomenon of a lot of people dictating the price of their cup of coffee purely on the greens, which is the unroasted coffee, is leading to a potential slowing of growth and excitement and could put a ceiling on this because people how many cups of coffee are you going to spend that much on that aren't great before you say i'm just not doing this anymore and 
relating this back to craft beer, I do think this is what led to some of the stalling within craft beer. So to kind of put a bow tie on this episode and relate it back to what's happening in the craft beer industry is it started with people who were insanely passionate about brewing absolutely fantastic beer. They're brewing amazing beers. They're highly experienced brewers. Uh, it's They're pulling from the top of the talent pool in the U.S. Well, as the market became much more and more saturated and more and more places are po- uh, popping up, the talent pool of experienced roasters goes down and down. And what ends up happening is you get a lot of home brewers that are like, I've made a good home-brewed batch of beer. I can start a commercial brewery. They start a commercial brewery, and the beers just aren't to the quality that someone would expect in paying $6, $7 for a pint of beer. And just like in the coffee industry, what could happen in the coffee industry is starting to happen in the beer side. As you go to enough places and you spend six, seven dollars on a pint of beer, and it's just not that good, or at least not good enough to warrant that price point. Maybe four dollars is a great beer, but it's six dollars seems like a bit much for what this is. I think that caused some of the slowed growth uh, within the craft beer industry is enough inexperienced brewers entering the market too soon or not partnering with the right people and creating a product that doesn't justify the price point. And I think on the beer side, what happens is they look at their competitors and say, well, they're charging six, seven dollars a pint. So we know that the market will pay six, seven dollars without tasting their own product and saying, does this product warrant that six, seven dollar price. So that's an important thing in uh, kind of thinking about the customer and what they're experiencing and the price tag that you're putting on that. So at this point, I'm like, you know, 52 minutes into this thing. And this is before we've even officially launched the podcast. I'm, I'm trying to record 10 episodes before we launch. So you have plenty to listen to to get an idea of what we're doing. I have no idea if a anyone is at this point in this podcast 53 minutes in or if anyone is that interested in, in this topic of what specialty coffee roasters could be doing better. But hopefully some of my experience in an outside industry that did have explosive growth and did gain a passionate, loyal following and seeing how they approached it and some of the uh, initial tactics or uh, strategy I've used in launching Folly, uh, polling from the craft beer industry that uh, we've seen at least some initial success with could be helpful to others because I firmly believe that the rising tide does raise all ships, that us as specialty coffee roasters, if we can all do a great job at communicating to uh, coffee drinkers what the coffee tastes like, uh, being more clear about that uh, so that they will be more likely to try it, and if we can all figure out how to categorize ourselves within the industry to be able to get people to drink and be more collaborative and be more cooperative in getting people to just try these great coffees. Uh, I, th- I really do believe this industry has a chance to reach the levels of craft beer uh, and that explosive growth and potentially beyond that because of just the sheer number of coffee drinkers there are in the U.S., internationally, and across the world. So on that note, I'm going to end episode five, five, yeah, episode five of the Folly Coffee podcast and have a great day.